We are, we are the thing that he's building and, and molding and making and shaping and, 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 and presenting. And he's putting us out in the world and he's saying, I made you to be useful. I've given you a new nature so that you can go and spread the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Greetings, everyone, in Jesus' name. It's good to be with you all here this afternoon. I don't know about you, but it has been a very full summer for me, and I know for others in this room, it has been a very full summer. It's been filled with a lot of gladness. We've had a lot of uh, exciting Bible studies, baptisms in Uganda, baptisms here in Boston that have been happening, <clears throat> people who are exploring potentials for church plants in other cities, both internationally and domestic. Uh, there was an engagement over the summer. Congratulations, Stanley and Chelsea. Excited for you guys. Um, so there's been a lot that's happening, a lot of encouraging things. And a lot of times within those encouraging things, uh, we also recognize the opposite of that, which is discouragement. And so that's what I want to talk a little bit on this evening as we look at the scriptures and see what God has for us. Before we do that, I do want to sing another song. Uh, those of you who know me, I like to typically either start or end with the song. And today we're actually going to do both. We're going to start with a song, which I've sent on the, uh, the chat. And then we'll also end with a, a different song that's on there. So Brother Stanley, if you would, we'll sing uh, We Shall Assemble. <clears throat> Assemble on the mountain, we shall assemble at the throne, with humble hearts into his presence, we bring an offering of song, and honor and dominion, unto the Lamb, unto song of the redeemed. We shall assemble on the mountain. We shall assemble at the throne with humble hearts into his presence. We bring an offering of song. Glory honor and dominion unto the Lamb, unto the King. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. We sing the song of the Amen. <clears throat> well, back in June of 2017, 
I met Natasha at, well, I met Natasha a long time ago. Um, <laughs> this is long after we're married and, and we're living in Uganda at this point. Maybe I should preface the story with this. June of 2017, um, earlier, uh, a few weeks prior to that, Natasha had went to go and visit her mother in Reno, Nevada. Um, her mother was sick and she was going there to be with her and help her through a tough time. And so in June of 2017, I went to pick her up at the airport. And that particular evening when I picked her up at the airport, I was ready to pack our bags. And rather than just picking her up to go back to our home in Kampala, I was ready to buy another ticket and get on a plane and come back to America. Now, as you know, we did not do that. But the discouragement at the time is what led me to have this deep feeling of just throwing in the towel, just giving up. It's all, everything we're doing is, is for nothing. It's too much. Let's just turn around and go home. Now, thankfully, by God's grace, we, we were able to continue on. Part of that being because we were in the middle of an adoption. We weren't able to just pick up and go. We can't just throw in the towel and quit, even though at the time I wanted to. Part of what led up to that feeling or that sense, it was an evening, it was, she was coming in on a, a late night flight, and I just I remember driving to the airport and just the, the, the feeling in this pit this inside your stomach. I'm sure all of you can know what feeling I'm talking about. I'm sure we've all faced moments and times like that where you just have something inside of you and you just need to, to somehow get it out. It was all because we had a situation that happened. We had a brother in the church who came from a Muslim background, someone that we had invested hours and days and weeks and months and a lot of time into loving and investing and building trust and relationship. And one evening, while Natasha was gone, uh, we had several brothers over at our house uh, and we were just having uh, some fellowship. We had been doing a, a study that evening and it got a little bit late in the evening. And in Uganda, as the sun goes down and as the night draws on, it can become a bit dangerous to travel by foot. A lot of people don't just get in their cars when they leave your house and, and drive home. A lot of people are walking back home. And depending on where you live, it can be very dangerous to leave at a certain time of night. So I had let this one brother stay the night. That way he didn't have any danger that evening going home. Well, the next morning when I woke up, I found that he wasn't there. And that was a little bit puzzling, but I thought, well, maybe he, need, maybe he had something going on. Maybe he just had to, to head out quickly that morning. But as I looked around, I saw that the house was not the same way we left it. It seemed that things were a little bit off. And so I started looking around and I, I saw that the garage door had been popped open and that our, one of our rooms, the door had been open and some things on the shelf were, were, had been messed with. <clears throat> well, and I, what I found was that he had taken some money. Now this money, w Uganda, we, we typically have banking issues um, and this particular situation that happened was uh, we had to withdraw our money for the adoption and I had withdrawn it that morning, nobody knew about it because the next day I was gonna go and pay the legal fees for some of the, uh, the process for the adoption to continue forward. And when I went into that room, I found that the money was gone. 
And that's where the feeling just sank, you know, just this pit in your stomach. And the trust, the betrayal, the, the, all the feelings that well up inside of you all just rushed in that moment. And that's what led up to that evening when driving to pick up Natasha and just being at this point of just, let's just throw in the towel. What's, what is all this worth? And it wasn't about the money. It had nothing to do about the money, but, but it's what that money was supposed to do because I have my children that were, were, were working towards this adoption. What does this mean for them if we can't continue to push things forward? But then also we have a loss and a betrayal of a relationship that now has been broken and the heartache and the hardship that comes from that. <clears throat> Is anybody else, can anybody else recognize that feeling? I'm sure there's some of you in this room that can think of a, a time, a moment where you've had something like that happen, right? Maybe not to the, to the same degree, maybe not in the same example, but we've all felt moments of discouragement where we just feel like, you know what? I want to throw in the towel. Maybe even points where we said, you know what? Take me now, Lord. It's too much. Right? Turn with me to 1 Kings. The title of this message is Thanksgiving in the Unseen. Thanksgiving in the Unseen. In 1 Kings, we meet a particular prophet. He's a great man. He's a great prophet, actually. And we're just going to go through a little bit of the highlight reel of this prophet's life. So he's someone, we, his story begins where he stops the rain in the land for three years. It's pretty big stuff. Ravens bring him food. He multiplies a widow's flower. If you remember that story, we're talking about Elijah here where he meets this widow because of the rain stopping. Well, what happens? What does that mean when, when your life depends on farming? When you have a drought, it means there's no food. And so this widow's flower, what she has to eat is dwindling smaller and smaller and smaller. And, and Elijah tells her to, to bake a cake and to bring it to him and that there would be enough for all of them. And God works through Elijah. He ends up resurrecting this widow's son. And then the major story of Elijah where he confronts 450 prophets who are worshiping prophets for Baal and 400 prophets for Asherah. He confronts the idolatry that's in the kingdom. And he's so bold Think about the story, not only the boldness to confront them, but then when he begins to set up the, the terms in which they're going to see whose God is the true God and who's going to send fire from heaven. If, if it's Baal, then let's worship Baal. But if it's Yahweh, if it's our God, then let's worship him. And so he gives them time to allow fire to come down and set the altar on fire and nothing happens. And Elijah is so bold and so confident, he says, you know what? Why don't, why don't you take our altar and let's get some buckets of water and let's douse it with water? Or you know what? Let's do it a second time. Just to be sure and to show you how confident I am in my God, I'm going to do it a third time. And he does it three times. That's boldness, right? And then he ultimately restores the rain and the land. And what happens <clears throat> with Elijah 
at this point in his journey is Jezebel. Ahab goes and tells Jezebel, hey, here's what Elijah's done. All of our prophets are dead. His God sent fire on a, a water-saturated altar, engulfed in flames, and Jezebel responds. Verse 1 of chapter 19 of 1 Kings. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, so let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he, when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So it's interesting to see Elijah's response. I mean, he just gets done <laughs> taking on an army in relation, right? Like, I mean, one man and his God take on this multitude in front of him and this one woman says, I want you dead. And he, he loses heart. He fears and he runs for his life. Verse 4, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. Look at, he's, he must have that, that same, some sort of a, a filling, that pit in his stomach where he says, just take me now, Lord. I'm done. Jezebel wants me dead. She didn't convert. She didn't, she didn't bow down and worship you. So everything I've done is for nothing. Just take me now. And he said, it's enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. I kind of take comfort in some ways in reading this story. A man that is so great in faith. A man who is so bold to take on these prophets and to douse the altar in water and be so confident that God was going to come through that even he gets discouraged. Verse 5, Then as he lay and slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked there by his head was a cake baked on coils and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of the food forty days and forty nights as far as Harab, the mountain of God. And there he went into the cave and spent the night in the place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. Of the children of Israel, have, the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets the sword, with the sword. And I alone am left. They seek to take my life. Then he said, Go out, stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore, down, tore into the mountains and broke the rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, 
a still, small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return your own way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nemeshi, as king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, and you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed, bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now it's interesting here to see, and if you were to, to think and place yourself in, in Elisha's shoes, what are, what are the range of emotions that you're feeling at each phase of this, right? I mean, to have this great success where you've just defeated all of these false prophets, you've got to be riding on cloud nine, right? And then he's in the depths of despair. He's ready to give up. Take me now, Lord. Just, I might as well die. And he's running in fear. And then he's got 40 days and 40 nights to process his thoughts and his emotions and try to think about everything that, that has happened, right? He gets to the mountain. He's confronted with, with wind and earthquakes and fires and all these things that, that many times are God, right? I mean, we're thinking of the, the Sinaitic Mountain here where, where Moses was, where there's thunders and clouds and fire and God is always in those things. But this go-around, he's not in the wind and the earthquake and in the fire and these things that are very seen and visible. But in the midst of that, a quiet and still voice knows exactly what Elijah needs, exactly what he needs to hear at that moment, at that time. Elijah didn't need fire and earthquakes. He needed his father. He needed God. And Elijah is thinking, well, I'm, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. Everyone has forsaken you. There's no one left. I'm the only one. I'm in isolation here. And later we see God saying, I've got 7,000 reserved in Israel who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. So don't, don't elevate yourself too much. Don't stay in the depths of despair. You're not alone, right? But, but in the midst of our situation, in the midst of trial and struggle and hardship and whatever tough thing we're facing, we usually think we're the only one. And it's in the midst of that that we can either go to a place of health or unhealth. It's in the midst of that that we can begin to turn our hearts to God or turn our hearts away from God. 
Thankfully, we see here, Elijah pushes in and goes towards God. So there's four things that I'd like to propose here of ways for us to deal with discouragement. As I mentioned at the very beginning, it's been an exciting summer. We've had, there's been baptisms, there's been new people coming into the church, there's new Sattler students who are here moving into Boston on the edge of a, of a new chapter of their life that, that many of them have never experienced. The opportunity in God's kingdom every single day are tremendous and it's exciting. And we don't know excitement unless we know the opposite of that. And so how do we deal with those things? Whatever they may be, maybe there's something now that you're individually going through, corporately going through, and a family going through. How do we deal with those things in a way that allows God's grace and mercy and love to be present in those situations? Number one, seek, ask, and knock. Seek and ye shall find. Ask and it shall be given to you. Knock and the door shall be opened. I know that can be, seem very simplistic, but I think that's, that's the purpose. Sometimes it's the simplest of things. Sometimes it's not the earthquake and the fire and the wind and the, the ruckus that can be created. Sometimes it's the simplest it's the still small voice that says, come, follow me. It's the voice that says, trust me. The voice that says, abide with me. It's the voice that says, you have weariness, you've been heavy laden, you have burdens, come and learn of me. Take my yoke upon you. The promise of scripture is that when we do seek, we will find. We're told to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And sometimes that's hard to do, right? That's, that's, that's a very simple statement in some ways. Seek first the kingdom of God. Okay, it's not so hard. Until you actually start doing it, right? until we actually start to press in and recognize our own flesh that needs to be crucified, when we start to recognize the relationships that need to be made right, when we start to recognize the repentance and the crucifixion, and we start to recognize everything that goes along with seeking first the kingdom of God, that, oh, seeking means to pursue something at the expense of everything else. When Jesus says, do you love father or mother more than me? You can't be my disciple. The promise of scripture is that when we ask, we will receive. That doesn't always mean that it's the answer that we're, that we're looking for. We're going to receive an answer, but it may not be the answer that we're hoping or wanting or even praying for. But God does hear us. God does see us. God is on our side and he is for us. So as we pray and as we engage with scripture, we can find the answers that we need in life. 
Knock, and the door shall be open. Jesus makes the statement that he is the door. That he is the way of life. That there's, there's a whole new way, not just a new way to think, not just a new idea or thought to put some sort of belief in, but actually that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that when we knock on that door and we walk through it, it's a narrow gate, it's a narrow entry, but there's true life and joy and abundance when we truly knock at his door. His goodness, his love, his grace is all there for us. So seek, ask, and knock. Number two is remember and reflect. Remember and reflect. It's always important that we remember what God has done. One of the failures of Israel was that they didn't remember. One generation rises up. They didn't know Yahweh and his ways. How he had led them out of Egypt with a mighty, arm, with a mighty hand and outstretched arms. How he carried them on eagles' wings. They didn't know that. There was a failure to pass those things on. They forgot. And so they did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And they didn't serve him, but instead they served Baal. So we have to remember for us that if we are in Christ, it says that we have moved from darkness into light. We were ones who didn't have mercy, but now we have obtained mercy. That's why I love testimonies. We had a, a dear brother and sister this Wednesday evening share some of their testimony. And even last night we talked quite a bit more about their past and their journey. And it's, it's a tremendous thing when you actually get to hear somebody's, somebody going from darkness to light. Like the lights are off and now the lights are on and you can actually see where you're going. Like that's, that is a tremendous thing. It's a beautiful thing. That's the work God is involved in. When someone who didn't have mercy now has mercy. When someone who didn't have grace now has grace. When someone who walked in darkness now walks in light. Those are things worth remembering. And we have to remind ourselves of that. Elijah needed to be reminded. Through the still small voice. that his father was still there and that God was still God and he was going to do his work. I just need you to be faithful, Elijah. And that's what he's calling us to, to be faithful. We have to remember. Reflect. Reflect on God's goodness and his promises. We have to remember Hebrews talks about that we need to, uh, that we still have a promise of entering into his rest, right? So we have 
the, the coming out, but we have the promise of a future hope. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We have to remind ourselves and reflect upon the realities that are brought here and now for us today. That when we are baptized into Christ, we put on Christ, and now that we've put on Christ, we reflect on those realities that Jesus is in us and with us. And that it's now our job to show the entire world who he is, to manifest him <clears throat> to the intent now that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. To reflect on those promises in his goodness and his love and his mercy and reflect in both ways. Not only reflect it internally to, to, to continue to think about these things and allow them to be something that, that brings us uh, rejoicing and joy and, and happiness, but to actually reflect those things, right? To reflect them to the world around us. You've been made new so that you can continue to do that in the world for others. Paul says in Ephesians that we are his workmanship, right? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. But we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship. We're the product. We are, we are the thing that he's building and, and molding and making and shaping and, 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 and presenting. And he's putting us out in the world and he's saying, I made you to be useful. I've given you a new nature so that you can go and spread the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So remember and reflect. Number three, strive and serve. Strive and serve. Think about Elijah there. <clears throat> He's fleeing, he's running in fear, he's lost hope, he falls asleep, he's woken up, he's given food and drink, he goes back to sleep, he's woken up, he's given food and drink, keep moving, 40 days and 40 nights. Because it's not only isolation, but stagnation, that is an enemy for the Christian journey. Isolation and stagnation are enemies to the Christian journey. We're built for community. We're built to keep moving. We're built to do something for God and his kingdom because that's what he designed and that's what he desires. Hebrews talks about, as, as, even as it talks about entering that rest, it says that we should what? Strive to enter that rest. Paul, Paul goes around and, and, and brings new people into the kingdom as he's planting churches in all these different places of, uh, throughout Galatia. And as he's going around to these different churches, he goes back around telling them that we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Well, wait a second, Paul. I thought we already, we were in the kingdom. Well, we are. We're citizens. But we have to strive and struggle for the inheritance of the kingdom. And <clears throat> scripture teaches us that, and hopefully most of you in here should know this verse well, that he does not give us a spirit of what? Of fear but of power, of love, and of sound mind. 
That sounds like that's supposed to produce something really good, right? Not a spirit of fear, to run away, but he's given us a spirit of power, of love, and of sound mind to accomplish what he wants us to do. As I said, isolation and stagnation is the enemy of the Christian journey. That's why the Hebrew writer tells us to exhort one another daily while it is still called today. We need each other. Sometimes I, I do forget. I need brothers and sisters around me to remind me where they've been and where they're going, where I've been and where I'm going. We have a duty to each other to remind each other of the promises and the goodness of God and the realities of his judgment. Number four, rejoice and give thanks. In Thessalonians, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Going back to that story I shared at the very beginning where the individual that was a brother in the church, in that moment, in that time, when I had the pit in my stomach and just ready to give it all up and just get on the plane and go home, I never knew what the future was going to hold. All I knew was what I saw in that moment. And what I saw in that moment, I didn't like. I didn't want it. I didn't like it. This isn't where, this isn't where God is. Like, what's going on here? This is not going the way things are supposed to go. So in what I saw, I didn't want. But it was what I didn't see and what I didn't know that God did see and God did know. Fast forwarding two years, somewhere, uh, I think September 22nd, 2019, I had the, the privilege and the opportunity and the blessed opportunity to baptize another brother in the church who was from a Muslim family. And when he shared the reason why he wanted to become a Christian, it was because of how the Christians responded when someone stole money. Because where he was from, if someone steals from you, well, if you want to be nice, you take them and you beat them and you bring them to the police. But many times you don't trust the police in a lot of developing countries, and so usually you beat them and somehow either tie them down or put, put tires around them and you burn them. And when we didn't respond that way, it showed him a different way. When he saw that not only did we not do that, but when that individual came back, and Brother Matthew was actually there for that, when he came back sobbing and crying asking for forgiveness for what he had done, we received him. Now trust had been broken, 
We have to, to begin to, to rebuild and reinvest and see what the future holds. But in that moment, we forgave. And that's what spoke to this other brother. The visible witness of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The ability to see love extended as opposed to what he had been used to seeing. And that brother now, not the one who stole, but the other brother who at September 22nd, 2019 was baptized, he and his family are, are faithful brothers and sisters, anchors in the church there in Kampala. It was our first deacon ordination was for this brother in the church there. And the testimony of him and his family is vibrant and beautiful. And so that's the, that was the unseen part, right? If I, if I limited myself in what I saw in the midst of that moment and allowed it to isolate me and to, to cause me to be stagnant and just say, I'm just not going to do anything then. We'll sit back, let's finish the adoption, and then we're, we're done. We wouldn't have allowed God to work in the ways that he has worked through the church there in Kampala. So sometimes in the midst of what is right in front of us, sometimes what's right in front of us can be distorted, right? Because we're processing it through, through a range of emotions. We can have a whole group of people looking at a situation and each walk away with different conclusions, right? That's why we have that saying, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Like when we look back on a situation, sometimes we can see it, see it with much more clarity or because we have a, an outcome that happens later we can look back and see okay I can now make sense of this and this is what got us to here and we're better off as a result of it <clears throat> so number four rejoice and give thanks I'd like to read a story some of you are probably familiar with this story if you've read The Hiding Place, Corrie Ten Boom. Corrie Ten Boom and her family grew up in, during the time period of, of World War II and they were a Christian family who hid Jews in their house and they eventually were caught by the authorities and imprisoned as a result of it. So Corrie and her sister Betsy were then sent to one of the um, concentration or imprisoned prison camps and she writes barracks eight was in the quarantine compound next to us perhaps as a deliberate warning to newcomers <clears throat> were located where they located the punishment barracks from there all day long and often in the night came the sounds of hell itself they were not the sounds of anger or of any human emotion but of cruelty altogether Blows landing in regular rhythm, screams creeping, uh, creeping pace. We would stand in our, uh, sorry, we would stand on our ten deep ranks with our hands trembling at our sides, longing to jam them against our ears to make the sound stop. It grew harder and harder. Even within these four walls, there was too much misery, too much seemingly pointless suffering. Every day, something else failed to make us, uh, to make, failed to make sense. Something else grew too heavy. Yet in the midst of the suffering, 
the women of the prisoner the women prisoners around Corey and Betsy found comfort in a little Bible study they held in the barracks. Corey writes, they gathered around the Bible like waifs clustered around a blazing fire. Waifs were like homeless people gathering around a blazing fire. The blacker the, uh, the night around us grew, the brighter and truer, truer and more beautiful burned the word of God. When they were moved to barracks number 28, Corey was horrified by the fact that their reeking straw bed platforms swarmed with fleas. How could they live in such a place? It was Betsy who discovered God's answer. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but I, I know I would have a hard time finding a, a point of rejoicing in that. That's what we can do. We can start right now and thank God for every single thing about this new barrack that we've been moved to. Corey says, I stared at her, then around this dark and bleak place. They thank God for the fact that they were together. They thank God that they had a small Bible. They even thank God that they, um, for, the, for the horrible crowds of prisoners that more people would be able to hear God's word. And then, Betsy thanked God for the fleas. The fleas, this is way too much. Betsy, there's no way even God can make, a, uh, make me grateful for a flea. Betsy's reply, give thanks in all circumstances. She quoted, it doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. And so we stood between tiers of bunks and gave thanks for the fleas. But this time I was sure Betsy was wrong. It turned out that Betsy was not wrong. The fleas were, nu uh, were a nuisance, but a blessing after all. The women were able to have their Bible study in the barracks with a great deal of freedom, never bothered by the supervisors coming in and harassing them. They finally discovered that it was the fleas that kept the supervisors away from the barracks. Through the fleas, God protected the women from abuse and harassment. Dozens of desperate women were free to hear the comforting, hope-giving word of God. Through those fleas, God protected the women from much worse things and made sure that they, that they had their deepest, truest needs met. We all have fleas in our lives. Are we thankful for them? That's a pretty convicting story to me. And I think if we're honest, we probably all can recognize something similar, right? We may not be sitting in a prison cell under the same types of circumstances, but what are those things in our own life that we aren't thankful for, that we need to be thanking God for? So we need to seek, ask, and knock, remember and reflect, Strive and serve, rejoice and give thanks. I want to close 
with 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 6. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 6. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outer man is perishing, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Let's stand and sing Jesus is Lord. It'll be on the chat. Jesus is Lord, my Redeemer, how he loves me, how I love him, he is risen, he is coming, Lord come quickly. sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Precious is he serve. 
serve him when he comes with shouts of glory I'll go with him Alleluia 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 Lord, come quick.